together. Uh, we, we ask that you be with us this morning. I pray that your spirit would work among us, that you would make your word known, that you would glorify Christ in our midst, that we would love him more by the end of our time together this morning, and that we would have hearts that are ready and open to receive what you would say um, in the main service. pray that even now that you're continuing to prepare Philip as he is uh, bringing the word this morning. I pray for our body. I pray for uh, those who are with us this morning that you do what only you can do, which is to draw men unto Jesus and, and to point us to him, that we love him more, that we um, strive and fight and, and work to kill our, the rebellion in our own hearts and to, um, to portray him, to reflect him, image him as you are teaching us through the things that you bring our way all of the junk that we deal with is to our good because it works toward one purpose that you have for us not to make us rich not to make us famous but to make us look like Jesus and we pray that you do that again this morning in his name we pray amen all right we are in Exodus 34 Exodus 34. Welcome. Hey. You know, it's amazing. The door is magic. You can wait for like five, ten minutes, and then once you shut the door, it's like, start coming in. Um, sometimes y'all should do that probably at nine, and then I'll come in a little earlier. What was, we talked about this last time, way back in Exodus 33, what was the concrete symbol of the covenant? The concrete symbol of the covenant. Passing in front of the ten words. The ten words written on what? Oh, the tablets. The tablets. So you have a concrete, hopefully would suggest the answer. The concrete <laughs> symbol of the covenant was the two tablets, right? That's what they first received. Way back... Uh, in, in, in the, the first time before the golden calf back in chapter 31 what, how were they fashioned do you remember how were these first the first stone tablets fashioned who cut them who wrote on them they were cut by the hand of God and written by the hand of God yes what happened to them Moses threw them down, Moses threw them down. why why would you throw something down that was cut and written by the hand of God they had already done it by their actions. By setting up an idol uh, that basically said, we don't want a God we can't see but speaks. We want something that we can touch, that we can see, that we can make comfortable to us. Rather than a God who is, we want a God of our imagination. And they, in God's words, ruined the covenant. They've ruined it, he told, them on, he told Moses on the mountain. They've ruined it. Moses comes down, and he sees what they've done, and he does in practice what they've already done in their practice, which is shatter the covenant. All right. Moses intercedes for them. 
God agrees to, uh, to, to be with them. He forgives them, sort of. And then uh, he, he says, because, of, I found, because you found favor in my sight, mediator, I will be with them. I will go with them. We can build the tabernacle. We can move forward like we did before. So now it is time to ratify the covenant, right? They've got to make this thing real. Turn to chapter 34, verse 1. Good morning. How are you? Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze, uh, great gaze, graze opposite the mount, that mountain. So Moses cut the tablets, the two tablets of stone, like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Who prepares the tablets this time? Moses. In what way? What does he do? How does he prepare them? He cuts them like the first ones. God had cut the first ones. Now Moses cuts them. Is that all that happens to the tablets? It's all done by Moses? God writes on them. Thank you. The covenant mediator does the work upon which the covenant will be engraved by the finger of God. He does the foundation work. He cuts the stone, right? And it's upon Moses working cutting the stone that God writes his law. Uh, we see in verse 28 that what God writes uh, are, the, are in fact the Ten Commandments. Um, does God's command uh, regarding receiving these remade tablets sound familiar to what had happened previously? Do you remember what he said whenever Moses had, was called to go up to the mountain previously? The same, was it similar? Is there some differences? 
chapter 19. You remember this? Lo, those many moons ago. The question is, are there similarities between when Moses is first called up to the mountain in the first giving of the tablets and when he's called up to the mountain in the second giving of the tablets? Are there similar? Other than the fact that he's going up the mountain. Sure. Are there similarities? What are they? He's got to go by himself to the very top. He's got to go by himself to the very top. Okay. What else? Be by himself at the top. Okay, that's similar. What else is similar? What else? Morning when they both went up. Yes, God gave them the covenant in the morning, and here he's called to go up with the tablets in the morning. What else? Anything else supposed to be on the mountain? Not even the flocks or herds aren't even. Don't touch anything. Nothing's supposed to be on this mountain. Is there a difference? They did, didn't they? They went to what what position? Halfway up. Remember we talked about how it kind of mimicked the three stages of the tabernacle, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies, and the summit of the mountain being the holy of holies, and the mid place where the elders and Aaron, right, went up. This time, is that happening? No. Just Moses goes up. Aaron doesn't go up with him. Aaron does not go up with him. Why do you think that is? First of all, Aaron was party to the party. Party of the party? Party, party of the first part to the party of the second part? Yes, he was very much uh, the, the, party, the party in chief there. the neck and stiff-necked. The neck and stiff-necked. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, yes. So maybe there's some of that. Aaron uh, was a key party in, um, well, I mean, according to Aaron, the cow just popped out of the fire when he threw the gold in, but, you know. They have, uh, there's no Aaron that goes up. Who else doesn't go up this time? Who else, who? Joshua's not on the mountain this time. That's odd. What the mediator must do, he does alone. What the, what the mediator has to do, meeting with God, receiving the covenant on behalf of the people, he does it alone. He's got to do it alone. All right. Look at uh, verses 4 and 5. Do you see a contrast here between Moses ascending and God descending? We saw the same kind of language in chapter 19. Moses is ascending. God is descending. What's that picture? What's that a picture of? Holiness. Because of the separation between the two. Okay. There's a difference between the God coming down onto the mountain and Moses coming up from the people at the base of the mountain. There's a vast gap between their natures, right? And they're... Go ahead. Yeah, that in itself is a merciful act. He could have just wiped them out. He's descending to meet with them. There is a point of meeting, and the point of meeting is this covenant, and it's the mediator who's carrying the water, so to speak, for the people. All right. There's a separation between the people at the base of the mountain and the Creator God who speaks. Um... So who's speaking in verse 5? The ESV brings this out. Some, some of the smart guys uh, bicker over whether or not the syntax here is suggesting that Moses is announcing God or whether God is announcing God. But the context, I mean, I'm 
my personal opinion, is that the, the context of the, of the whole passage is that God is proclaiming his own name. God is proclaiming God. And maybe it's just my mindset. It's kind of like a person, God, is proclaiming another person, God, who's proclaiming God. It's kind of one of those kind of person things. has kind of a Trinitarian feel to me, but everything kind of has a Trinitarian feel to me, so I don't want to make too much of it, but it does have that feel. What does he say? What does he proclaim? This is a very important thing. Probably one of the most crucial statements that we see in the first five books on the nature and mercy and forgiveness of God. Um, what does he say? His proclamation here becomes, I'll, I'll just, almost creedal in the rest of Scripture. This, is, this language is used again and again in Psalms, in Nehemiah, and in other places, referring back to God's nature here. What, what does he say first about himself? Okay, and that's capital O, capital, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that is, he's the I am, the derivative of I am. I exist, I always have existed, always will exist. I am ultimate personality. Yeah. Twice. Twice he says it, right? Then what does he say? How does he, how does he describe himself? God. Okay, a God. Merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. Any other translations? Merciful and gracious. Anybody else have steadfast love and faithful? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. You're right. Merciful and gracious. Go ahead. What else? Any, anybody else have anything other than merciful and gracious there? Okay. It's being mentioned. What is it? Compassionate. Compassionate. It's being mentioned right after his name. So there's an emphasis on that here. It tells of his importance. What's, what's the next thing? He, he says merciful, gracious, and then what else? Slow to anger. Some translations may say patience. Patient. Slow to anger here, literally, well. We talked about God's anger with the whole Pharaoh incident and, and the language in, in kind of a Hebrew idiom of his nostrils flared like a raging bull, right? The, the, the way that the, the language worked there. Here, it says slow to anger or patient. It, the language reads... Long as to the nostrils. Uh, when someone is angry, they're, they're, they're flare like a, a raging bull. Here, we might say he's got a long fuse in, in our kind of vernacular. The Hebrews would say his nostrils take a long time to ignite. You know, this is kind of, the, it's kind of this whole idea of... Kind of well, it, the, the point is that he is slow to be into that raging bull mode, right? Um, which is interesting, it would be a raging bull after the whole golden calf thing, but I don't know that that was really... What's next? What's next? What next? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Some, some translations would render this covenant loyalty and truth. We might say grace and truth. Covenant loyalty and truth. Steadfast love and faithfulness. What's the idea here? Why would, he, why would those two things be linked together? Because the people um, rebelled against God. They, they broke the covenant. 
they didn't do what they were asked. They wanted to do their own thing, but God is still keeping the covenant. Why? Because he loves them. All this is a measure of love. I wonder what the or what the uh, comparison with 1 Corinthians 13, mm-hmm. the definition of love, mm-hmm. Galatians 5, yeah. the wording is very, very similar. Yeah. Yeah? Good. Somebody told me a long time ago that, that, uh, uh, that, that God is truth, not, not God speaks truth, but God is truth. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a passage of scriptures that God cannot lie because he is, he is truth, much like a, a spring pushes forth water, and he is nothing but truth, and he creates a covenant and cannot break it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's working here. Well, it says he's abundant. It's abundant. The, the word is over excessive, huge amounts, can't contain it, and steadfast love and faithfulness. So, why would he bring this out here? It's his work, right? Based on who he is. It was with Abraham, the unilateral covenant. Here he's calling them to reflect him, but the covenant faithfulness is, he's, he's bearing that burden. Um, and he's drawing that out with his interactions with Moses, what he has done with Moses, how he said, I, I shouldn't be with them, I should destroy them, I'll, I'll just be with you. And each point of that, he's gone further and further back into, I'll be in their midst, I'll be their God, they will be my people. It's his nature. God will keep his side of the covenant because of who he is and uh, what he's promised to do. To whom will he give mercy, does it say? To whom will he give mercy? Thousands. Does anybody have a textual note on thousands? The thousandth generation. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of time. Yes? The words there, um, keeping steadfast love for thousands, do you have any... Um, <coughs> keeping is an interesting choice of words. Okay. Maybe. Maybe he's... Uh, I, think, I think it's more of an expression of who he is here than who they, who, than whom they, who they are. Who they are. Um, we, it, that's not even a preposition. I don't have problems with that one. But um, I, don't, I think it's more of, who, uh, of dealing with his nature here and, and that he's keeping it, that he is... Well, he's, he's guarding and keeping that part of his own nature to bestow... And what we saw last time, he'll have mercy on whom he has mercy, has compassion on whom he has compassion. Well, he's keeping it to bestow upon those whom he wants. And, and it's not like a limited, uh, it's not like a small number. He says thousands of generations. Compared to what? Where does he go next? Compared to <clears throat> visiting the To the third and fourth generation. So we got thousands of generations of mercy and grace. We have third and fourth generation 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on them. What is that all about? He's keeping his covenant, okay, and that he sees the long term, thousands of generations. No, um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, that, that is keeping his covenant. He said, if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen when they don't do it. Okay. Yeah, so, so, he's, so there's two things that are juxtaposed together there, aren't they? There is God who gives mercy freely and abundantly, and there's God who will by no means clear the guilty and visits. Why say third and fourth? Why we stop there? Why doesn't he say visit on thousands of generations? What's going on there? Well, I think some of it is that God is um, eternal. He sees everything. He sees uh, the consequences of sin. And there are things that we do, there are all things that we do, that don't just affect us. My sin affects lots of people, right? Your sin affects lots of people. We don't sin in isolation. Even the ones that we think are all secret and whatever, nobody will ever know. God knows, for example, how we view the opposite sex. Is it a click away? How we deal with that stuff informs our minds, transforms our minds, and how we view the opposite sex. There are sins that shape us, and they carry on into a marriage relationship. They carry on into how the kids pick up on how we view the opposite sex. They carry on how the grandkids view how we carry the and then so on. There are patterns of life that have long-range effects, and if we don't cut them off now, we see them later. It carries on to the third and the fourth generation. Seems simple now quick but it carries on by no means clear the guilty and yet abounding in mercy how do you reconcile those things yes I don't know the answer to your present question but okay I'm making an observation here sure when we sin it's not God who's sinning through us it's our sin that follows us several generations down. Okay. His covenant promise, abounding in steadfast love to thousands of generations, his love is way more powerful than our sin. We're still responsible for our actions. We still face the consequences and our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids' kids. Mm -hmm. But his love is way more powerful than that. Uh, what was it said? Keen off what you just said. There was a guy, he's dead now, and that's usually where all the good quotes come from. Uh, he said that the, the mercy in Christ uh, far exceeds the depth of our sin. And I think that's what you're getting at. And I think it's a picture here. Um, incidentally, have we seen this language before? This language that he's using. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, bounding in steadfast love, but will by no means clear the guilty third and fourth generation. We've seen that before. Is this new stuff to us? God's never said this before? Is that what God said to, when he called Moses? 
Well, no. You talk like in Exodus 3 and 4, way back when? Uh, I don't think so. He just said, I am that I am. I think that's what he said there. There was another place where this very similar language to this was used. Turn to Exodus 20. And look at verse 6. I think there's something very significant about him using this language at this time. What does it say? Somebody read it for me. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, what does it say before that in 5? What was he talking about? Or 4, four 5, and 6, I think is where it is. Maybe. Is that right? 4, 5, and 6? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm getting at? Look at, uh, look at 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Right? Shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Is a golden calf on the earth beneath? Is a cow on the earth beneath? And yet he keys off of that language, I think, in this third commandment to reveal himself here with Moses in chapter 34. It's the same type of language. There's a mercy component that's huge. There's a by no means clear the guilty component that's also somewhat huge. Why? Well, it's in the same context. Okay. They, they made a carved image mm-hmm. and they broke the law and these were the, the prescribed, you know, I will by no means clear the guilty, but showing mercy to thousands. That's the prescriptive law. And in this chapter 34, it's kind of God upholding that covenant. He's saying his word back. Remember what I said here about the carved image thing? I reveal my nature there. I'm a jealous God. Right? And this is what that looks like. This is who I am. This is what I do when you have idols that, that, that uh, you are in rebellion against me to serve, this is how I respond. I will by no means clear the guilty. Yet, mercy and grace, that, that's conflicting, isn't it? Is there not tension there? Yes. So, I mean, you've got to talk about Jesus here. you got to. This is not justice. God said he was going to do this. Moses pleaded on their behalf. This is written in stone, and the people disobeyed it. They all should die. I mean, it's not justice because they still live. Right. That's right. And is it mercy for just... Look, look at the mercy aspect of it, though, that he has. Is it mercy just for certain things? What does he say? Mercy for the... In chapter 34. I'm sorry. Flip back over. I get confused where I am sometimes, and I have to flip around. He lists things... For which he will have mercy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, I really don't know what the difference in each of those words is, or what the differences are in those words, but it sounds like nothing's left out. I mean, I can get to this point, nothing's left out. And yet, he will by no means clear the guilty. It's interesting, in Exodus 20, 
showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, and then in 34, it's all based on him. Yeah. I will show my steadfast love and I will forgive everything based on what I know I'm going to do. Very good. And yet, he will by no means clear guilty. The forgiveness and mercy is part of his justice. How so? He is. You can be just with mercy. And we saw that by, by the way he tempered the, uh, the, the, how he struck them. He didn't strike them all down, even though that would have been just. He, he just there was a plague that was visited or some, some kind of thing that was visited on just part of them. So there's tempered justice, but it's not full justice. I mean, I guess if you say he could serve 2 to 20 for this in federal prison, justice would be 2 or 20 or somewhere in between. Is that right? If we say the statute is wide? But that's not the way he wrote it. You carve an image, you worship it, you die. That's how he wrote it. There's no range of punishment there. Yeah? You, you just you think forward to Jesus, and Jesus obviously was the epitome of mercy and grace and of justice. Mm -hmm. He paid the debt for all this. But you think, you think about the Israelite people from now all the way up until Jesus' day, they look back at how much God gave them grace and gave them uh, mercy and didn't punish them for their sins. Mm -hmm. And they're princes. It's kind of like a, a spoiled child that does wrong and their parent jumps in and and says, oh, but, you know, my child would never do that. Whatever. It, it, it would be, like, placing myself in their shoes, it'd be real easy to get arrogant. Mm -hmm. God will never do this to me. Right. I am Abraham's child. I've gotten all this stuff for millennia. Yeah. And, and, and the whole mercy to thousands thing, that really fits our, our preferred view of God anyway, isn't it? He's like the big grandfather type. Right. It's going to be all right, little son. Let's go to Dairy Queen for some ice cream, you know. That's the, that's the view that we typically have of God. Long beard, that's his job to forgive. Then he tags on this, will by no means clear the guilty. Um, we expect God to show mercy, because that's just, we're American. And that's just what he does. Um, and yet, you're right, we take advantage of that. We presume upon the grace of God. I, last night we had a, a kind of a game night with the, with the grandparents. They, they made a, a game. Goatopoly. <laughs> they, they, I'm serious. This board was fabulous. It was fabulous. They had all the different types of goats as each of the properties that you would normally have. They had different types of cards were goat feeder and some other kind of deal. And it was just hilarious. We had a great time. And they brought popcorn for the kids and, and everything. So uh, Grandpa uh, popped popcorn and gave a bag to Nathaniel. And Emma said, oh, can I have some? No, it's mine. It was a gift. You didn't have popcorn before he gave it to you. It was a gift. No, it's mine. That's our natural bent. Uh, in that case, Daddy did no, by no man, means clear the guilty. But, but there was that whole expression of the nature of the heart. We expect because we are so awesomely awesome to be loved and forgiven and pampered and treated well, right? We just, we just, that's just who we are. Of course God's going to forgive us. 
by no means clear the guilty. How do you deal with this? Here we see he's merciful and he's holy. How can he judge? How can he by no means clear? He's holy. He's holy. And, and I'm not. He cannot forgive sin and be just. The clearest picture of him doing this, I think in the Old Testament, it, it we'll get to, oh, in one of those glorious days, uh, in, in, in Leviticus uh, 16, 17, the Day of Atonement, that whole, that whole range, where God uh, tells them how you have justice and, and, uh, and have mercy. Uh, you have a, a goat and a bull that's killed and, 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 and the blood sacrifice is made, and you have another one where you put hands on the goat and you kick them off into the, into the wilderness to die on their own. They're bearing the sins of the people off away from the camp. You have that whole picture. Um, God, you said this would work for our sins. Is this enough? God, you said this would work for our sins. Is this enough? That's the picture that we have in the Old Testament of how justice and mercy are together. Somebody else bears it. Yeah, the only reason God's able to show mercy is because Christ um, is our atoning sacrifice and takes God's wrath on our behalf. So it's not like God just doesn't pour out his wrath on on his people. He does through their Savior, Jesus, and only through his blood are we able to be I think what you're getting at is in Romans 3. Just thought I'd go there. Romans 3.21 But now, but now, the righteousness of God, the rightness of God, the goodness of God, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We just talked about a little bit how that happened. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. An atonement, a satisfaction for the wrath of God. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance. What's forbearance? Patience. Can we just read about that? He's got a long fuse. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Well, what's he talking about there? Passed over former sins. What, what is that? <laughs> because, the, because the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, which was a figurative thing for the blood of Christ to come, he passed over former sins he didn't kill David when he was still on the throne after he raped Bathsheba. He didn't kill him. He should have. He showed steadfast love to him. And now what we see in Psalm 51, according to your abundant mercy, according to your steadfast love, David cries out, blot out my sin. He was forbearing on David's sin. He's forbearing on the sins of Israel. He was forbearing uh, uh, on all the sins that you see and all your favorite saints in the Old Testament who blew it mightily, he forbeared. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, the right judge, will by no means clear the guilty, 
and the justifier, abounding in mercy, showing steadfast love to thousands of generations. They meet at the cross. They meet. God descends. Moses ascends. The bridge is Christ. Just and the justifier. What's Moses' response? What would you do? What's Moses' response? He bows and he worships. And the idea here is one of humility and deference to one who's far greater than he is. And in that attitude of humility, what does Moses request? What does he request? God to go with him in the midst of these people. In the midst of what? Go with, it's a pronoun. Is it singular or plural? Us. Why would he say us? Why wouldn't he say them? God already said, you found favor with me. He represents the people. Their burden is his burden. What you do to me, you do to them, right? Second, he calls for God to show that mercy and grace to his people by forgiving all their iniquity, all their sin, our iniquity, our sin. He lumps himself in. He was on the mountain. He didn't have anything to do with a calf. Our iniquity, our sin. He's the covenant mediator. He holds himself responsible for the actions of the people. Finally, Moses asked for, for God to take Israel as his possession. What's significant about that? Why is that a big deal? Take them as your possession. What does it mean? Possession or inheritance? Inheritance, possession to the uh, inheritance. Of the land, didn't he? he did. And yet, take this people as your inheritance. Why is that significant? What do you do with stuff you own? take care of it. You value it. Yeah, he's asking them to be their protector and go with them to take Canaan. You protect them. You take care of them. You own them. Take us as your inheritance. It's not property here. It's a people. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the exceeding riches of his inheritance in Israel, in the saints. You see the similarities in the New Covenant, don't you? The same picture. God has taken a people for his inheritance in Christ. And what is the immeasurable power toward us who believe the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him as a king over all creation is at work in his inheritance, remaking his people into the image of his son. So we see that God ratifies this covenant because of who he is, not because of who Israel is. Israel is. He's merciful to his people in the new and better covenant because of who he is and not because of who we are. Um, Lest any man should boast, it says in Ephesians 2.8. And we should like to boast, right? I've read these books. I get strangers to listen to my gospel presentation. 
because I don't let go of their arms. I feed the poor. I, I, I. Moses is saying on behalf of the people here, God be merciful to us, the sinners. Does that sound familiar? Only the mediator can accomplish the ratification of the covenant. In a greater way, Jesus lays the foundation for the new covenant as the chief cornerstone. By his blood, he purchases new hearts for those upon whom he sets his favor. How does he do this? He accomplishes it by identifying with his people. Their sin becomes his burden. It becomes our iniquity. Our sins. Uh, there's a guy that used to go here a while, a, a long time ago. Jess Moore. I love that guy. He he is a uh, he is uh, not here anymore, and it, and he's it just bothers me because he's such a great guy. But we got into a discussion one time about the Psalms, and he said, you know, the Psalms were the hymn book for Jesus in his humanity on earth. He sang them as worship to God, and I can think about that. I can see this, you know. Uh, 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 as high as the heavens, you're high. I, mean, I can see the God, you know, God worshiping God through in, in Jesus. I can see that. What do you do when you get to Psalm 51? Created me a new heart, O God, a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. How is Christ singing that? And He said, He's singing it on your behalf as the covenant mediator. What He does on the cross is cut the foundation to buy a new heart, it says, and we see in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3 and also in Hebrews 8, that the heart that God writes, the tablets that God writes on now are the tablets of the heart. And he writes his nature because of what Christ has done. He writes his nature. And what is his nature that we see here? He's holy and he's merciful. And he's shaping us, growing us, into being those who are holy and merciful. On these hearts that Christ has purchased, God writes upon them God's law, God's testimony of who he is, not as a list, but by fashioning the nature of his people into the image of his Son. What's the result of that? Well, the result is, we show covenant loyalty and truth. We are to give mercy to thousands. We forgive iniquity and sins done against us. Jesus says 70 times 7. Not the idea that it's a non-ending thing, an unending thing. Do we hang on to bitterness and wrap our hands around the throats of those who owe us a debt of pennies when we have been forgiven a debt larger than the reading of the current debt clock? Incidentally, that's growing. And we've been forgiven more than that. To have his law, his nature written on our hearts, has massive implications. As you have been forgiven, so forgive. As you have been loved, so love. Reflect the one who gives mercy to thousands of generations. Do we love whom he loves? Do we love whom he loves? And... Do we trust him to forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors? You can't have one without the other. 
Any questions, any comments? Mm -hmm. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll have we'll be in thirty four for a little while. You bring that up next time. Anything else that will not take us thirty more minutes to go through? Maybe. I'd have to look that up. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now, but you, I think you're right. I think there is some statement that, that everyone is to bear their own. But I think the, the point of that is, and I think there's an Old Testament statement to that effect too. Don't, don't say the father's teeth have set me on edge or the sour grapes or whatever, that whole, that whole thing. But the point is, there are consequences for it even, even still. Regardless of the, the guilt of it, the consequences for it bear out. And, and we don't sin alone. We're, it, it, it has implications for, for everyone around us. How we react, how we're shaping our hearts with either Godward or uh, rebellion, you know, toward rebellion to what he said. It, it, I think that's the import of the, the third and fourth generation here because he's forgiving thousands of generations. But I think he's it's, it's pointing to the consequences too. Yeah. This is, I'm a believer and I've been a believer for years and years. This is very hard to believe. This is like, this is like watching a a superhero movie that the the hero is so outlandish, so far out there. You're like, that. There's no way I can believe this. There's no way this would ever happen in real life. It is hard to believe that that there is a God that loves us so much to overcome our sin. Mm. I mean, it, it, I. <laughs> I believe it, but I don't believe it. And it's like I have to preach it to myself daily to go, you know, he, he is God, and he's shown his love to me, and he says that despite my sin, which I sin every day and have for years, mm -hmm. that he forgives. That's just hard to... Based upon who he is and based upon what Christ has done when he proclaimed it is finished, we can trust that. Not to, not to stomp on it, by presuming grace, and we know we don't presume it, we know that we have it when we're striving to look like Him and asking forgiveness when we don't and, and, and pleading the Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we look more and more like Jesus every day. That's when we know it's been applied to us. When that's the heart cry, I want to look more like you in everything I do, and I don't. Help me. It's dependent, there's a dependence factor there upon the grace and mercy of God that apparently is inexhaustible because it's to thousands of generations. So, which is a good thing because I'm, I'm, I think I, I could, I, I'm, sometimes I feel like I'm striving to tap the edge of that. And, I, and just, he's infinite, I'm not. Yeah. That, that clause in verse 7 reminds me of Isaiah 63, mm -hmm. where uh, it's basically saying Christ is coming to, in judgment. His mm -hmm. robes are stained with, with the blood of mm -hmm. the people. Mm -hmm. And then it says, For the day of the vengeance is in my heart, and the year of the redeemed has come. Mm -hmm. It's that juxtaposition of vengeance is quick, 
third and fourth generation right versus to the thousandth generation that year the of the Lord. yeah that's so good it's, it's you see that picture again and again of mm-hmm. there is justice but he's abounding in mercy mm-hmm. there has to be justice but he's abounding in mercy that that's the heart of God that's where that's where we have to have to rest yeah anything else okay thank you guys for being very patient I will pray and we'll be dismissed Lord what do we do with this on Monday morning or Sunday afternoon when someone offends us does something snarky or does something boneheaded and we're hurt and offended do we cling to it in our rights or do we display steadfast love and mercy in some small way that reflects the abundant steadfast love and mercy that you have shown to us in Christ It's easy to get wrapped up in offenses that have been done to us. It's easy to stay there. And you know my heart. I got lots of roots. But you have promised to change us. And that all of these things work toward that purpose of conforming us to the image of your son who came full of grace and truth. We long for the day when we obey you perfectly and worship you perfectly and love you and your people perfectly. But until that day, would you, would you be gracious to us? Grant us hearts of humility that resonate with the words You've been forgiven, forgive. You've been loved, love. Not that we diminish truth, but that our impulse is to reflect your great compassion for your people because of what Christ has done. In living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. We thank you for such a great gift Pray that you make us pictures of it daily. In his name we pray. Amen.